15, as we heard earlier in this week, Paul sends Ananias of Damascus to pray for that uh, notorious persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus, because as Jesus says to Ananias, Saul is my chosen vessel, my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and before kings and before the sons of Israel. Uh, and we've heard Paul preach in the context of the children of Israel to Gentiles as well in Acts 13. Uh, this morning we're going to hear him preach to Gentiles and to kings. So we're going to look this morning at Acts, 6, Acts, Acts 17, excuse me, Paul's sermon to the uh, intellectual leaders, in a sense, at least so they perceive themselves, of the ancient world in Athens. Uh, on his sermon on Mars Hill. Uh, and then in the second hour, we're going to talk about Paul's speech before King Agrippa uh, as uh, the Roman uh, authorities were trying to figure out what to write down. Paul had appealed to Caesar, and they were trying to figure out what were the charges against him. What was he appealing exactly? So we're going to look at those two uh, and then take a look right at the very end of Acts uh, about the outcome of that appeal, at least as far as the Holy Spirit has been pleased to tell us through Luke. So Acts 17, and the sermon begins in verse 22, but again, we need to hear context here because it's so uh, important to understand to whom Paul is speaking in this setting. And, uh, and uh, as we think about those to whom we have the privilege of sharing the gospel uh, in our time and in our day. So, verse 16 of Acts 17. Hear the word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way 
toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. As we ask him to teach us this morning, I'm also going to be mentioning a prayer need that just came to our attention. Karen Hanna-Oka, wife of Pastor Dale Hanna-Oka of of, uh, Carson Church, Uh, Dale has taken Karen to the hospital, to the emergency room, because she, for some mysterious reason, suddenly has lost the sight in one eye just now. Uh, So we want to be praying for for Karen and for Dale. At this time, let's ask the Lord to be merciful to them and also uh, to be uh, merciful to us in teaching us this morning. Father, we thank you that uh, whatever occurs in our lives, we can be assured that we are in your hands and that you all do do all things well for uh, the good of your children to make us more and more like the Lord Jesus. Father, we do pray for Dale and Karen right now as uh, no doubt their hearts are concerned and alarmed not knowing why Karen has lost the sight in the one eye. Uh, We pray that you will watch over her, that you'll enable Dale to drive uh, uh, safely and uh, swiftly uh, to an emergency room that the medical staff there will be able to know what to do to care for Karen, that you will restore the sight in her eye and that there will not be any other long-term repercussions uh, from uh, this distress. Father, we know that uh, our physical eyesight, which is so precious to us, is really um, less necessary than the spiritual eyesight, which only you can give. And we ask you uh, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear again the glory and the grace of Jesus in his word. And also, as you have taken the blindness of our hearts away from us by your grace, by your spirit, and as you have shown into our hearts the light of the knowledge of the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, the the revelation of your glory in Christ, that you would also be pleased to use us in the preaching of your churches, in the day-to-day witness of your children, that others would hear the good news of your grace and that your spirit would take away their blindness of heart and give them eyes to see the glory of Christ and ears to hear the sweet promises of the gospel. Father, like Paul, we are called to bear witness not only to people who may have 
some or much exposure to the Bible, as Paul encountered in the synagogues, but also to people increasingly in our culture who have little knowledge, really, first-hand knowledge of what your word says, uh, such as these uh, very intellectual but very ignorant folk that Paul met at Athens. Uh, Give us wisdom, give us boldness, give us grace and humility, and with our humility, courage to bear witness to Christ in the place and the time in which you've called us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, Luke has given us really two accounts in some depth of the Apostle preaching to Gentiles who had little, if any, exposure to the Old Testament Scriptures. And what uh, the first one is in Acts 14 when uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, reach Lystra and they're confronted with the kind of a backwoods, backwater, superstitious form of paganism there. Uh, and uh, we have a sample of their preaching. It's really not a whole sermon there because the main purpose of Paul's message at that point was to stop the Lystrans from trying to offer sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. They thought Paul and Barnabas were gods in disguise. Uh, Paul, the speaker, the mouth, the voice, uh, they thought was Hermes, the messenger of the gods, and Barnabas, the strong, silent guy behind the scenes who had more dignity and authority, they considered to be Zeus. Uh, and there they basically argued, we're just people like you are, but there is a God who created the universe and has revealed himself in his providence to you. So they appeal to what we would call general revelation, the way God has displayed his wisdom and his power. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. Uh, through the created order, and uh, summons, even there though, they summon these people to repentance, uh, that uh, God is not going to allow people forever to go wandering after their own imaginations. The one that we just heard is the longer of the two sermons to pagan Gentiles, to the Greek intelligentsia, we might say, at the Areopagus. The Areopagus is a smaller hill under uh, sort of near the Acropolis, uh, but it was also the name of the, it wasn't exactly the city council, it was more like the, uh, the censorship board uh, of the city of Athens, and, who determined what were appropriate or inappropriate things to be preached and taught. Uh, and, and so they, they are the ones who decide what can and cannot be said in the marketplace, in the agora, as it was called in Athens as well. And that's why Paul is uh, hauled before the Areopagus, which met on Mars Hill, hence the name Areopagus, but also was this council that uh, was determining whether his was an acceptable message. Now, it's some mark of the uh, difference between Paul's day and the day of Socrates, several generations before that, that uh, now they're just all curiosity. Socrates actually was accused of teaching foreign gods and was forced to drink hemlock for introducing too many new things. But as Luke points out here, quite frankly, in his little comment in verse 21, by this day the Athenians don't care all that much about truth. They like to treat truths kind of as toys. Uh, The Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Hey, what's the new thing? What's the new buzz? Uh, 
Sort of like any UC campus, probably, almost, huh? Um, let's, you know, what's new, what's radical, what's never been thought or said or argued before, let's, let's play with those ideas for a while. So although it, it sort of has the, the tone of an interrogation, it, it doesn't have the life or death consequences that it did when Socrates was put on trial. Now, they just want to know what, what to think about Paul. What I think is so helpful for us in this sermon and appropriate to our time, perhaps even more than earlier generations of Christians uh, in America, is that we are increasingly coming into a situation in which we will encounter people who may be highly educated and ignorant about the fundamental truths of God's divine revelation in the Scriptures. As I mentioned in the prayer, Paul preached often in synagogues. And in a synagogue, he could expect that people would not only know the Old Testament Scriptures, but accept them as the Word of God. And so he consistently, rightly, appropriately, quotes Scripture, quotes the prophets, demonstrates from the Scripture that it was necessary for God's Messiah to suffer and then to be raised and enter into His glory, and that this Jesus whom I'm preaching is that suffering and now glorified Messiah. Very appropriate. A natural starting point. These people in the synagogues, the Spirit of God may not have been at work in them at all. The Spirit of God in some cases may have been at work in them and drawn them into kind of a hopeful Old Testament faith, and all they needed to hear was the promises are fulfilled to enter fully into the joys of the new covenant now. But in any case, by virtue of their culture and their upbringing, or in the case of Gentile proselytes and God-fearers, by virtue of whatever drew them to be attracted to the God of Israel and to His purity and His truth, they were there convinced that the Bible is the Word of God, and so Paul would build his case right out of the Bible, right out of the Old Testament Scriptures. When he comes among the Epicureans and the Stoics and the other philosophical schools in Athens, he does not assume that these people either accept the Bible as God's Word or even know the Scriptures given through Moses and the prophets and the other Old Testament Scriptures. So he says, I'm still going to appeal to Revelation. I'm still going to preach, and not simply as a kind of a, I've got this idea, you've got that idea, let's see what idea seems to be most plausible. I'm going to talk about revelation, but I'm going to start with the revelation that confronts them every day, the revelation in the created order, in the universe that God has made, and the revelation that is embedded right within their identity as human beings created in the image of God. An image distorted, defaced, obscured by sin, but an image that is still there, and, as you heard, Paul says, an image that even in a weird way, the pagans themselves still recognize. We are his offspring, said the pagan poet. We are somehow related to God in a very special way. So Paul builds a biblical case and actually confronts the worldview of the Epicureans and the Stoics by virtue of revelation that they themselves, in a sense, already know and acknowledge cuts the, the, the ground under their own presuppositions and shows them to be inconsistent. Um, but he doesn't quote the Bible directly. Everything he says is biblical in content. 
but he doesn't quote the Bible directly. I think that's so helpful for us as we think about sharing the faith with people today who may have little understanding of the Bible or often at least come to it with a very different, even if they've been exposed to the Bible, with a very different worldview, uh, very poly, uh, uh, polytheistic worldview in a sense. Um, we talk about uh, all of the pluralism in our, in our culture. Uh, there, you know, a lot of your neighbors and a lot of the folks with whom uh, you kids uh, will be or are going to college were, are more than happy to say, if Christianity works for you, terrific, go for it. Uh, Baha'i works for me. Buddhism works for me. Secular humanism works for me. That works for me. You do your thing, I'll do mine. And so we can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul here as he confronts all kinds of people in all of their pluralism with the one true and living God. Now you see that this all started because Paul did not confine his teaching in the synagogue with the Jews. There was a synagogue in Athens and he did speak there to the Jews and the God-fearers. But he also went into the marketplace into the ex- place where ideas are exchanged. Where are those places in our culture today? University campuses would be one of them, sure. Sometimes at least, city parks may be one of them. Maybe malls, depending on the uh, management of the mall. Uh, the, the mall near our house will allow uh, people with a big sign that says, We want you to know we're not endorsing whatever these wackos are saying here. But they will allow religious groups to have a table there at that one spot at the mall. Um, The point is, we need to think about that. Because the Apostle Paul was not willing to confine his witness to the synagogue where people already knew the Bible. I mean, in a certain sense, he's still going to foreign turf there because they weren't convinced that Jesus was Messiah. But he was ready to go to other places as well. And we need to be thinking about those places where worldviews and ideas can be exchanged and looking for those kinds of opportunities. For, Paul's, for Paul, it brought him into contact with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, as Luke tells us in verse 18. We need to know just a tiny bit about these philosophies so we can see how Paul addresses them in his sermon. Epicurus, and obviously the op- founder of the Epicureans, Zeno, the founder of the Stoic movement, Stoicism was actually named after the, the court or porch, the Stoa, in which the Stoics used to debate in Athens. But both of these men were contemporaries who lived three centuries before the birth of Christ. Epicurus was a committed and consistent materialist. He believed that, there, that people have a body and a soul, but even the soul is made out of matter, very, very fine matter. So that when one dies, the body, of course, is buried in the ground and decomposes, and the soul, this very fine matter, sort of dispels into the universe. But the most important thing to know about the Epicureans for the sake of Paul's sermon is that they believe that the gods, if there were gods, were way far away, unconcerned about what was going on on earth. They kind of chuckled at the myths that are embedded in Homer's poetry where the gods intervene in human behavior. Nah, they don't care. They are committed, they are aloof in their own little pleasure world somewhere far away. 
uh, indifferent, serenely indifferent to human behavior and action. They don't really need our worship, and they don't meddle in our lives. Comfortable gods, nice gods to have, sort of like the deist's god that put the universe all in order, wound it up, and flung it out, and won't have anything more to do with it. So, if that's the way the gods are, serene, aloof, unconcerned about us, then the wise person is not going to fear that they're going to punish him for his disobedience, nor is he going to hope for any reward beyond the grave. Rather, he should imitate the gods in a kind of aloof enjoyment of pleasure. Now, don't engage in pleasure to the point where it causes you know, pain. Uh, certain forms of drug abuse cause short-term pleasure but long-term pain. The Epicureans were smarter than that. Indulge in pleasures that don't have bad after-effects. But basically, that's, that's the Epicurean view. And all of this mythology, well, you know, it's kind of silly. All the idols up the hill on the Acropolis, that's a little ridiculous. No, no, we're more sophisticated than that. Stoics, if the Epicureans emphasized the transcendence of the gods, that they were far, far away, too far to be concerned about us, the Stoics emphasized the imminence, the involvement of the deity. But the deity is not really a personal deity. They talk about the logos, which is the principle of order and reason embedded in the world, almost on the bridge of pantheism, that is, everything is God. But it's not quite that. So Stoic poets such as Aratus of Soli said of the Logos, we are all his offspring in the sense that there's a little divine spark in every one of us. Sounds kind of New Agey, doesn't it? Yeah, New Age is not so New Age. And of course, a lot of the New Age people would say that we're now advocating a spirituality that is older than the Judeo-Christian scriptures. So they're not really appealing to newness either. And it's really nothing new. The Stoics would say the wise person recognizes that he's connected with everything else in the universe through the Logos, and therefore, he cultivates an attitude of kind of self-sufficient contentment. Chill out. Don't let things bother you. Be impervious to the changing circumstances of your life. After all, history is an unending cycle of a period of order followed by a period of chaos, followed by a period of order, followed by a period of chaos, followed by... And it goes on and on and on. And it never, ever ends. So somebody who comes in and says there is a day of judgment coming because history is not just an unending cycle. It's got a direction ordained by God. Well, the Stoics are going to laugh and mock at that as well. Um, so these folks, this is sort of where they're coming from as they hear Paul preach. And uh, as they hear him preach, they hear him talking about Jesus in Greek the name of Jesus, and they hear him talking a lot about the anastasis, which is the resurrection. Now, of course, the other thing you need to remember is that the Greeks sometimes turned abstract nouns like resurrection into the names of deities. So they would talk about, in using the Greek names, they would talk about fate, not simply as a principle, but as a deity, or mercy, or Nike. Anybody got Nike shoes on? Victory turned into the goddess of victory. 
or effort or shame. So when they hear anastasis, resurrection, a feminine noun, they think, oh, Paul's preaching about this Jewish God, Jesus, and his girlfriend or his wife, anastasis, this foreign deity, this couple. That's what Paul's talking about. You see, these are really bright folk. They haven't been paying very close attention. And so they want to hear more about these strange ideas because they're always curious, you know? Toys are truths. Truths are toys. Let's play with these ideas a little bit. So they call him before them. And Paul begins. He begins with, uh, well, our English versions wrestle with uh, the end of verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. If you have some of the older versions, going all the way back to the King James Version, it will say something like, I see that you are too superstitious. The trouble is that word that Paul uses is right on the border between religion as a kind of a neutral or even a positive thing and superstition as a negative thing. Later on in Acts, in Acts 26, it's used as a negative thing, as Festus is trying to get King Agrippa to to be his consultant and figure out what's, what to do with Paul. He says that's some kind of a dispute about their religion, which could be superstition as well. Well, Paul maybe probably is not using this term directly to insult them right out of the chute. That's my guess anyway. And he's choos- chosen this ambiguous term because even though he thinks it's a ridiculous superstition, he is also acknowledging that there is a spiritual hunger there. You are very religious, In fact, you're so religious that I've seen not only all of the shrines and temples and images of all of the gods to whom you can give names, but you've even covered your bases. I've seen a shrine to the God that we don't know, the unknown God. And as a matter of fact, other ancient sources outside the New Testament also attest to the existence of this shrine to the unknown God. After all, in the ancient polytheistic approach of the Greeks and others, uh, every god had his own little turf and territory. Ares, Mars, Areopagus, was the god of war. Zeus was the super king god, but he didn't necessarily have power over everything else. And so you had all of these different gods, one god in charge of the sea, one god in charge of the harvest, Asclepius, the god of healing. So if you were sick or if you had an injury, you went to Asclepius to be healed. Everybody had their own responsibility. So you want to make sure that you do do respect to each and every one of them. And then if you've forgotten somebody, well, you don't want him to be offended. You want him to take it personally that he doesn't have a shrine, so you build a shrine to the unknown god. Make sure you've covered all your bases. Well, Paul seizes on that and he says, you see, for all your sophistication." For all your education, you acknowledge that somewhere deep down inside you know that there is a deity that you sense is there, but you have no knowledge of him. He's the one I've come to tell you about. In fact, as Paul makes clear, he's the one who's really in control of human life and experience and history and everything Else, And in contrast to the Stoics, who believe that this God is 
or this, that the divine is the logos kind of embedded within the created order, but not distinct from the created order. He is an independent deity who creates and stands outside his creation. And in contrast to the Epicureans, who insist that the deities, if they're there, are so far away that they don't care about anything, Paul says, no, the God I'm preaching is not only independent of his creation, transcendent, he's also engaged and involved with his creation. He's imminent as well. So, Paul says, I want to tell you about the true and the living God who created the heavens and the earth, who spread out the earth. This I'm quoting from Isaiah 42, because I think Paul is really echoing some of that. Who spread out the earth and all that comes of it and gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. You see, when Paul says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, the Epicureans would be nodding and saying, that's right, the gods don't need anything, they're far away from us. But, Paul says, he gives to all life and breath and everything. He created humanity. He is in personal relationship with us. And the Epicureans are going, no, 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 no. That's not the way we believe at all. That's right, Paul says, you don't know this God as well as you think you do. He's not dependent on his creatures, but he's not disengaged from his creatures either. He's involved as the creator. He sets the boundaries in terms of time and in terms of geography. He sets the boundaries for his people, for the nations, as they rise and as they fall. And, and again, one more gentle jibe at Greek arrogance. From one man he made the whole human race. Remember when Paul says, I'm a debtor? both to the wise and to the unwise, the Greeks and to the barbarians. That was the way the Greek mind thought about the human race. There there are the Greeks, and then there are the people that speak nonsense. Because barbarian, as far as we can tell, was a Greek word that simply was intended to imitate the way every foreign language, well, maybe not Latin because it was so dependent on Greek, but most foreign languages sounded to the Greeks. We, the educated folks, and then all of those other barbarians. Paul says, we're all made of the same stuff. We all come from the same father. He doesn't name Adam by name, but obviously that's the the reference that he's speaking to, a unified human race. And so he humbles the Greeks, who saw themselves as superior to the barbarians, and at the same time he emphasizes the amazing dignity of the human race by virtue of our being created in the image of God. God is not far from each one of us. And again, the Epicureans are going, no, no, that's wrong. He's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. His providence controls all that takes place in our lives, and we are his offspring. Now, the Stoic poet who wrote that no doubt thought we are a little spark of the divine. Paul quotes him, but in a different sense, because he knows that we're not a spark of the divine in that sense, but we are made in the image of God. And Paul says, in the light of that, we ought to know better. 
we ought to know better and not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now again, the philosophers, some of them would say, glance up the hill to the, uh, to the Acropolis and they would say, well, we know that, you know. We know that earlier ages built those images and thought that the gods were like that, but we, we know better than that. But interestingly, Paul adds imagination here, not just the outward craft that produces artifacts that can be seen and carried and destroyed, but the imagination. And there Paul is again saying, okay, you Epicureans and you Stoics, you think you're smarter than your polytheistic ancestors who built these glorious images and temples up on the Acropolis. But you yourselves have built an image in your own imagination of what the deity is like, and that's as silly as the idolatry that you now mock in your sophistication. You've been as ignorant as all of your ancestors in thinking that your imagination could come up with a right view of the deity. You've been ignorant. Your, your shrine to the unknown God admits that you've been ignorant. So, it's true you've been ignorant. It's true that it hasn't worked so well in verse 27 that you seek God and somehow grope your way, feel your way toward God and find Him. So God has come to speak to you. Previously He left you in ignorance. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He's put you on notice. He's commanded all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. You Stoics think that history is just a cycle that goes around and around and around and around forever and ever and ever. Paul is, says it's not so. There was a time when Paul left the Gentile nations in ignorance. Intellectual, sophisticated ignorance, but ignorance of himself. The times of ignorance are over. Now we're in the time of announcement, the time of a summons and a call and an invitation to repent. Think again of Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. That one of those passages that Jesus was pointing back to in Acts 1-8, Isaiah 49-6 and Isaiah 45-22. The ends of the earth are called to turn to the Lord for salvation. Paul says, now we're in the time when God is speaking not only to His ancient covenant people, Israel, but also to the nations, not leaving you in ignorance anymore. Because there's another time coming. Time of ignorance, time of announcement, time of judgment to come. God has already appointed the day of judgment. You don't know that day, and I don't know that day, and the disciples wanted to know that day, and Jesus said, it's none of your business. But God has appointed that day. And not only has he appointed the day of judgment, he's appointed the judge. And he's appointed the judge and announced the appointment of the judge in the midst of history. Not just at the end of history, but in the midst of history by raising Jesus from the dead. Already in history, the final judgment is announced and the final judge is declared. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, neither the Epicureans nor the Stoics 
nor the Platonists, nor the Neoplatonists, nor any Greeks were very keen on resurrection from the dead. For their various reasons, they thought that life in the body was just miserable and you needed to get away from it as soon as possible. Some of the ancient Greek philosophies had this little motto that really works great in Greek, Soma Sema. Body, tomb, body, tomb, Soma Sema. You don't want to go back to the body, no way. But Paul says that is God's, first of all, God's grace, not grace, God's vindication of his Messiah was to raise him from the dead. And that is the grace awaiting those who belong to the Messiah. But also, as we know from other parts of Scripture, there's a return to life in the body for those who rebel against God to receive judgment for the sins done in the body. So Paul emphasizes and focuses in on the resurrection. Paul says, you want to know why I'm preaching about Jesus and Anastasis? Anastasis is not some female deity. Anastasis is the reality of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, by which God has designated him the judge who will come at the end of the age. Well, that was about as much as they would be willing to listen to. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others responded with curiosity. I call their mockery sophomoric. Such a great combination of Greek terms. Sophos, wise. Moros, fool. That's what sophomores are, right? They've been in college a year. They think they know everything. <laughs> right. And by the time they're seniors, they realize how little they know. Uh, but these are, these are sophomoric uh, philosophers. Uh, they think they're so wise, but they're so foolish. They mock at the reality of the resurrection. And uh, like others who refuse to hear the gospel, turn their ears off at this moment. Others are curious. We want to hear more about this. They're not committed, but they're curious. And as you see, a few, at least... Some men joined him and believed. Dionysius the Areopagite is mentioned, also a woman named Damaris and some others. Some actually came to faith. Now I have read comments on this text that bring in then 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2 because Paul went on from Athens to preach at Corinth and in 1 Corinthians 2 Paul says, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and his, him crucified. And the commentaries that put those two side by side sometimes say, you see, Paul made a mistake here in Acts 17 because he didn't preach Christ crucified. He spent all that, wasted all that time talking about God's creation, about God's providence, about man made in the image of God, trying to persuade these philosophers. He should have just hit them with the cross. Bingo. Thing is, As the Holy Spirit guides Luke to record this text in this place in Holy Scripture, I certainly don't pick up much subtext of saying, bad mistake, Paul, wrong approach. Sounds to me, I think it would sound to you, like Luke is saying, let me illustrate for you how the Apostle takes the context of his hearers, their starting point, and leads them to the point where they can begin to understand the gospel of God's grace. Begins where they begin with the creation, with the revelation creation that has confronted them, 
and leads them to the point where they can hear at least to have some sense of the sense of the judgment of God that raises the issue of their need of atonement. This is not Paul's whole sermon, you know. Sure, there's no cross here. But he's gotten to that point and suddenly he's interrupted by the mockery. How does Dionysius... My name Dennis comes from Dionysius. I know Dionysius is also the Greek god of wine and revelry, but I prefer to think that I was named after this guy who became a believer. That's my. Anyway, how did he come to faith and Damaris and the others who came to faith? I mean, this is an amazing thing for people who had begun with a pluralistic, polytheistic, or Epicurean or Stoic worldview with that kind of smug intellectual superiority in their mind. And within the space of this message, the Spirit had worked in these group of people to the point where they followed on with Paul and learned from Paul and Silas and heard, no doubt heard, maybe it was through one-on-one conversation or small follow-up, heard the message of the cross that the judge who would stand and on the judgment, at the judgment throne at the end of history was the one who bore the judgment in the midst of history in his cross. That's why he's raised from the dead. I'm sure that was all said offline without Luke recording it for us. But the point is, you see, that Paul speaks here, and the Holy Spirit implies he speaks wisely and well to these people where they are and leads them toward where they need to be for the gospel to make sense to them. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit has to be the one who opens hearts, whether that's to somebody who's steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures or even the New Testament Scriptures or somebody who's coming from a very pagan worldview. But uh, the Holy Spirit uses means and He calls us to present the Gospel in a way that undercuts the presupposition of the worldviews around us and demonstrates the reality of the truth of the Gospel. Peter Jones uh, is uh, not only a faculty colleague of mine, taught New Testament for a number of years, and is still on our adjunct faculty, uh, but now uh, we couldn't tie him down. So he's only adjunct because he's launched a new ministry called Christian Witness to a Pagan Planet, in which he addresses the influence of neo-pagan spirituality, New Age and all that kind of stuff in a variety of venues on university campuses, equipping also churches and church leaders for that as well. Peter has been saying to me more and more, and I think he's right, that in some venues we have to start not with the cross but with creation because people will never understand the significance of the cross until they begin to discover that there is a creator beyond them, above them, to whom they are accountable. The creation sets the context for the cross. And that's what Paul is doing here. At the same time, this text, as well as everywhere in the book of Acts, emphasizes that whereas God calls his witnesses to express the gospel cogently, faithfully, articulately in light of where their hearers are coming from. That's part of what Luke is illustrating in the contrast between Paul's synagogue sermon and this one. At the same time, it's only the Lord who can open hearts. These are not intellectual arguments that will turn people's hearts around. 
Paul, uh, this is not about winning arguments. This is about warning and wooing people who will certainly stand before Jesus, the coming judge of all the earth, either to be vindicated once for all by his gift of his own righteousness or to, un- or to, be f- or to face their own deserved punishment and condemnation for their own rebellion. Only God can make that change. But we also can be his witnesses, his tools, used by his Spirit to draw people to trust in Jesus, who is the curse bearer for us, the covenant keeper for us, and is the judge who stands at the end of history, to whom every knee will bow, to whom every tongue will confess, to whom everyone will give an account. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word, which testifies to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, which humbles us by reminding us of our ignorance, reminding us of our accountability to you, that you are not a God so far off that you are indifferent to the behavior and the motives of those who bear your image on this earth. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and your work of grace in his life, capturing him by your grace, humbling him, making him the demonstration of the futility of the pursuit of righteousness by ourselves through law-keeping, as well as the wonder of grace to your enemies. Father, we thank you for the way that your sovereign spirit works to open hearts, to give repentance, to turn people around, that he's done that for us. We pray that he will do that through us and our witness in the lives of others who need to know the message of Jesus, the judge who became the judgment bearer, that he might rescue us from his own righteous wrath and bring us into the Father's favor forever. We pray in his name. Amen.